0: Welcome to the European Greens podcast, where we talk about the way forward to a greener and fairer Europe together with green leaders and activists. The European Greens are a European political party that brings together national parties sharing the same green values like democracy, feminism, support of LGBTQ, and climate action. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, and together, let's green our future.
1: Hello, dear listeners, I am Sarah and you're listening to a new episode of The Green Talking Heads. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the Digital Services Act, aka the Constitution for the Internet in the EU. This is a focus episode, which will be in two parts, and this is part one. To discuss this very contemporary and hopeful project, we had the pleasure and privilege to have Alexandra Gies as our guest. Alexandra is an MEP, Uh, she is responsible for the Digital Services Act on behalf of the Greens. She is a member of the Internal Market and Consumer Protection Committee, she advocates for gender-equal budgeting as a member of the Budget Committee, and she is uh, the Green Parliamentary Group Coordinator in the Artificial Intelligence Special Committee. So in this episode, we'll be covering the context around the Digital Services Act that you'll hear us referred to as the DSA, the legal, technical, and political implications of some of the demands that would be imposed on the online giants for their operations in the EU. And Alexandra also provides clear-cut explanations on the danger of advertising surveillance and online manipulation. Enjoy the episode. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us in The Green Talking Head. We're super happy to have you as a guest uh, to be discussing the Digital Service Act. And to start with, I think what would be great for our listeners is a little bit of a contextualization. So what is the Digital Service Act? you know, and what's the context for its uh, you know conversation and the negotiation around it that are that are happening right now?
0: Yeah, thank you for having me first of all, and uh, good to good to talk to you, Sarah. Um, the Digital Services Act is what we call the fundamental law for digital platforms in Europe. And we do believe, um, looking at the interest there is globally, that it might be the first fundamental digital law for the whole world, because the U.S. are looking at us, India, China not, but a lot of other countries are really, really interesting in what we're doing in Europe. So is it really the first piece of legislation on digital? Obviously not. Um, We have the e-commerce directive in Europe that has regulated the Internet so far, but it's 20 years old. So it's a piece of legislation that was drafted before uh, Facebook, which is not even Facebook called anymore, but Meta um, even existed. And therefore, it's so interesting, because if we care about democracy, we have to care about the fact that democratic conversation, public debate is not taking place anymore only in parliaments and in market squares and um, in political parties and NGOs, but it's taking place in private places privately regulated spheres it's like sort of transferring your political conversation to to a shop and there the shop owner decides who gets to speak and who gets speaking time and who gets maybe a bigger platform than everybody else and we would say if that happened in our physical analog lives we would say well that's not fair we have to give everybody the same voice But this is exactly what private platforms are doing right now. And the Digital Services Act is the first real chance we get to regulate this, to enforce existing regulation, but also to look into how they are doing this. Who are they putting on a platform? Who are they giving an amplifier And who is excluded from that conversation because they are not allowed to enter the shop or because um, there are guards that start insulting them? This is the equivalent of hate speech. And so this
1: this is what we're trying to do with the Digital Services Act. I think what would be also very interesting is really to um, help listeners understand in, in general, why is this so crucial to regulate uh, most, most importantly? If you could take us to the key priorities to tackle in terms of really holding these big platforms um, accountable, and how does the DSA help with that?
0: I think the DSA has um, two important parts. The first one is dealing with illegal content Um, Illegal content is the DSA does not define what is legal and what is illegal because this is not the competence of the European Union. Member states decide what is legal and what is illegal. And that's one of the interesting issues because there are differences. Um, For example, in Germany, my country, Holocaust denial is illegal and in Denmark, it's not um, so I think this is this is the first thing we need to consider. Um, but what the DSA does do is to indicate what the procedures are once the member state says, well, this piece of content is illegal. Because until now, um, we had no control whatsoever what the platforms did. So a piece of content was illegal, but if the platform decided it didn't want to take it down, it didn't have to. On the other hand, they we know that platforms do take down a lot of content that is perfectly legal, and they have not been accountable for it. So now we have clear rules, first of all, for orders issued by authorities, national authorities. And as Greens, we wanted this to be judicial authorities, but the other parties wanted it to be administrative authorities as well, without further safeguards. Um, so now, if an authority issues an order against a piece of illegal content, the platform has to follow suit. It can't say, oh, yeah, but our headquarters are somewhere else and there it's not illegal or just not answer it. They have to answer the public authority that issues that order. Public authorities can also issue order of information. So if they see there's a piece of illegal hate speech, for example, and people are being persecuted, they can find out who is behind that. And that is important as well. Um, we would have wanted, as Greens, further safeguards in order to make sure that, for example, Hungarian or Polish authorities can't abuse this provision in order um, to uh, to go against, for example, the LGBTIQ uh, community or political dissidents. Um, so we will have to watch out for that. But in general, I think it's very important that in most countries where we have rule of law, national authorities can enforce what is national law. Um, the, then for users... The arbitrariness with which content is moderated today will come to an end. What happens today is that your content can be taken down and you don't get any explanation. Your account can be blocked and you don't get any explanation. And this is hitting especially women, the LGBTIQ community and so on particularly hard. Um, this is coming to an end because the platforms will have to establish a complaint mechanism and an internal complaint mechanism um, to which users have access and that has been that has to be really spelled out very clearly. Then we have out of court dispute settlement, so external organizations that will be accredited by the so-called digital services coordinator, so national authorities that has to have to be set up in the Member states. And if that out-of-court dispute settlement still doesn't work for the user, you can still go to court. But you have two intermediate steps where you can defend yourself without having to go to court. And there's a very clear notice of action procedure. So this is what is foreseen for single pieces of content. What I think is even more important is the general accountability um, looking of the platforms. So there is a section on the very large online platforms. Those are the platforms then with more than 45 million users. And one article says the platforms have to do a risk assessment. So they have to write down what kind of risks their business model, their algorithms, their data collection, and so on, poses for the general society, for human dignity, for gender equality, for the protection of minors, for democratic discourse, and so on. This is the version we have currently in the parliament's position, because in terms of procedure, we have to underline the DSA isn't finished yet. We have a parliament position and we have a council position, and Parliament and Council are currently still negotiating to come up with a final version. But I'm pretty confident that the European Parliament's version on this article on risk assessments is very good and that we will be able to convince Council to take our version or to come close to it. So this risk assessment, why is it so important? Um, First of all, it's the company itself, the platform itself that has to draw it up, but there is external scrutiny. Um, they have to come out. The commission has scrutiny over it. the digital services coordinators have scrutiny. Um, there is there are external audits, so every platform has to go undergo at least one external audit per year by an independent organization. And what is I think even more important is Article Thirty One, which says that not only the commission gets access to the data of the platforms, and that is already uh, really A novelty, but also independent research. And in the parliament's version, and this is really a big green win NGOs as well, non governmental organizations will be able to start research projects and get access to the big platforms data in order to do those research progress uh, projects. There is a clear procedure. They have to be authorized by the European Commission. The data needs to be safe, but this is possible. And this is really, really important because right now we can say, well, the platforms have an impact on democracy. If Facebook um, helped the genocide in Myanmar, for example, or the suppression of black voters in the U.S. in 2016. But it's really, really hard to prove because we don't have access to the data because whoever says anything critical about the platforms doesn't get access to the data. And this is why this is so important. And this is really a global game changer because for the first time, we force um, platforms to give access to their privately held data for research purposes, for finding out
1: how they work. It's interesting because I I remember, uh, you know, some conversations around uh, meta sort of threatening to uh, to potentially leave Europe if there were to be so many... uh, uh, restrictions or so, and and if they couldn't also process the data uh, in the US. And also, I think accountability is definitely needed. So it's uh, it's really good to hear. Another green win, you actually mentioned a green win, there was a, another one as well around uh, surveillance advertising, like data surveillance and, and surveilling uh, minors for advertising purposes and for using uh, sensitive data. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Absolutely. Let me maybe first explain what surveillance advertising means, because I think many people are not even aware of what is happening. Basically, what the platforms do and what is the source of their enormous power, their financial power, their power in terms of data and also in terms of um, political um, and commercial manipulation of whole population groups, is the fact that every time we are on the internet, they collect data about us. They have a a profile about everybody of us. And even if you don't have a Facebook or Instagram profile, they still have an advertising profile on you. And even if you don't do much on the internet and you don't sign up for anything, you're still a victim of this. They do have a number about you and a lot of data. And every time you click on the website, while you're waiting uh, for the website to come up, Uh, What they're doing is they are basically showing your profile with all your data to hundreds, sometimes thousands of companies who decide if they want to place an ad. And this happens, um, I think, 300 times a day for every one of us. And every time we go to a website, they collect our data. And they put this data together. They aggregate it with, for example, if you use Google Maps or another navigation system, They buy data from data brokers that collect data about your analog life. So if you have like um, a discount card at your supermarket or something like that, all that kind of data is all put together and all the the data um, that comes from where you click on, how fast you type, how long you read, where you stop reading and go to someone else. Maybe you have a Kindle where you read your books and that all this data comes together. And these are really, really big profiles. And that's why they know a lot of things about us that we might not even know about ourselves. Um, And this is highly problematic because that means not only advertising is personalized, so we get exactly the advertising where um, advertisers think we want to see it and made by the, the product, But also the content we see, because if we are on Instagram or on Facebook or somewhere else, even on YouTube, um, what you see is not exactly what you choose to see. So the content your friends post or you have chosen, but what Facebook thinks um, will keep you on the platform the longest time possible. And then we have a little issue with human psychology, because what keeps you on a platform is what makes you interact. So you write a comment, you share that piece of content and so on. You interact with the content in some way. Um, And what makes you interact with content? So what makes you act as a human being are two emotions, and those are fear and anger. And this comes from the Stone Age, so when some kind of wild animal was looking at you, thinking about whether whether it wants to have you for dinner, you had two reactions. You could um, attack it, or you could run away. And therefore, fear and anger are very important emotions um, to get us into motion to act. But this was helpful at the Stone Age with the wild animals, but it's not particularly helpful in the Internet. Because this means that in order to keep us longer on the platform, the algorithms are optimized for showing us content that causes fear and anger. And you can imagine that in the political realm, this is really, really a problem. Because um, this is a huge help for extremist organizations, especially right-wing parties who work a lot with fear, with rising fear and anger, conspiracy theories, disinformation, these are all kinds of content um, that elicit fear and anger in us and keep us on platforms. And therefore, the algorithms are optimized in order to disseminate that content a lot quicker and a lot more than factual, calming content. And this is why we have such an imbalance in the Internet between real information, facts, uh, nice content, and disinformation and hateful speech because the algorithms pick up that we interact with that more and therefore they disseminate it a lot more. If you're part of a Facebook group with thousands of pieces of content that are posted every day, Facebook, the algorithm will pick three or four pieces of content that are the most extremist and share those and those will show up in your timeline. So we have two problems. We have the targeting and we have the engagement based ranking. So what's the problem with the targeting that they know exactly what kind of content will elicit fear and anger in everybody of us, because it's not the same. Obviously, you know, according to your personal interests, for example, if you love animals and you're a lot into animal welfare, um, you will react to content about animals and about animals' welfare. So they send out some piece of content that starts with animal welfare and then step by step takes you somewhere else, somewhere more extremist. Um, and this is why why this is so dangerous. Um, and this is what we have seen, for example, in the Trump campaign, uh, two thousand sixteen, and the, the Russian interference in the Trump and in, in, in the, in the U.S. electoral campaign. That, for example, with black voters, um, they work, basically, the content was posted on both sides um, in favor, like for black lives movement and against it, because it's just about getting people to fight against each other, because this is what creates engagement. Uh, And that's, that makes it so easy. And then people get sort of addicted to those kinds of messages because they get stronger and stronger and even more extremists and our emotions get higher and higher. And this is a real problem for for our democracy. This is why targeting is so problematic. So what are we doing about it? First of all, I think we should have a total ban of targeting. Platforms shouldn't have data profiles about us. We should be able to choose ourselves what we want to see in the internet as it was in the nineties and the early two thousands, I think it was absolutely great. And that was the big novelty compared to television that you chose your content yourself. Those times we can still do that, but most of us don't because it's just so much. um, And because the platforms have taken over. So what we got was first of all, a ban for those for targeting for advertising purposes for minors who are not actually aware of what happened, what's happening. We got a ban For sensitive data, according to GDPR, this is data um, that reveals our political affiliation, our religious belief, our sexual orientation, um, the fact whether we are part of a trade union, and so on, that kind of data. And not only the data we specifically indicate, but also the data that is inferred about us. This is what I explained in the beginning, it's like Facebook claims, like with 12 clicks you do in the internet, they can determine the sexual uh, orientation, which might not be all, always correct, but they put it in your profile and they sell it to advertisers, whether it's correct or not. And that kind of data, so inferred data, which they think they know about us from how we click and what we read, they, this will, not be, they will not be able to use it for advertising anymore. And then there's a third provision that says, um, we all know the cookie banners we have right now and um, what the platforms say, well, everybody gives consent. People don't mind having the data treated, the data processed for these purposes. Well, actually... The problem is, with the cookie banners we have right now, it's very easy to say yes and extremely difficult to say no. If you if you try to say no, um, first of all, you don't even find where the no is. There's no no button. There's a more options button or read all the, um, the explanations we can give and nobody wants to do that. Obviously, we want to get on with our lives and to read that article. And... Um, so it takes you ages to say no, and in the end you're never quite I I do that, and in the end I'm even I am not sure I really said no because it's so complicated. So what we want to do is to have a cookie banner that says, Do you want to be tracked? Yes, no. This is what Apple is doing for third-party tracking, not for their own tracking, unfortunately. This is why we need to ban it totally. Apple says, do you want to be tracked when you install a new app? Um, do you want to be tracked by Meta, by Instagram and so And you can say yes or no. And 80% of the people, guess what? They say no. So people don't want that. This is not democratic. We are being tricked into giving a consent that we don't want to give. And there's a clear provision. There are a couple of clear provisions in the parliament text that say, well, this has to stop. People have to have a real choice. And I hope that the combination of these three provisions, the ban for minors, the ban for sensitive data, and the fact that people can choose, um, will lead us to a situation where so many people will opt out, will will not opt in, this is more correct, um, and the data will not be significant anymore. Because if you take out the sensitive data, that's already very important for the political targeting. Um, I think the data will not be significant enough anymore. And there are on the market, different kinds of advertising. So what we are doing is not trying to ban advertising in the internet. We do need advertising to finance the services, but there's context advertising contextual, which basically analyzes the kind of website and sort of knows what kind of people are probably there and therefore ads can still be placed. So we will still see ads, but without the platforms having all these profiles and all this knowledge about us, which is extremely dangerous.
1: I think it's so, so, so good that you were able to give, you know, such a detailed way on how these platforms are actually uh, are using people's data, because I do believe that a lot of people actually don't realize. And that there's been different research about that, that, you know, say that the newer generation don't really care as long as, you know, they can, like, avoid having some of the advertising, they will give their data away. And it's a bit different from one generation to another. Um, but I think that's extremely important to, to, to understand. So if you can maybe give uh, some concrete things that, you know, EU citizens already can do to sort of, like, take back their power and also just be more careful with their online practices um, that that would be aligned with the with the DSA
0: yeah it's it's difficult I mean what you can do is try to use alternative browsers so don't use Microsoft or Google but use use other browsers there are um, also search engines I don't want you know uh, (laughs) advertise any of them but if you look for privacy friendly browsers privacy friendly search engines um, you can find them Um, Try to say no every time you ask whether you want to share your data, read carefully. But in the end, I think this is a a big, a huge societal and economic issue. It's an issue of power and it cannot be solved on an individual level. and I think this is a really, really important point to make because this is sort of the excuse of the platforms and also of the publishers who also use the data that they say, well, well, people agree in the end, it's, it's, you have a choice, but you don't have a real choice. I mean, if saying no makes your life so complicated and cuts you off from a lot of knowledge, um, you are in a, in a constant disadvantage compared to others. For example, I, I don't give consent. But that means I can't read a lot of articles. How can you tell people, well, just don't give consent to YouTube? Well, we know that most young people, I mean, I have daughters um, and they, you know, got through school and are starting to get through university using YouTube, basically. I mean, they even now in, in, in COVID times, there are some professors at university who put their, their lectures on YouTube and they have to watch them in order to find out what their professors are saying. Um, this is this is one of the major sources of knowledge. How can you ask people, well, don't give your consent? That's that's just not fair. Um, so you can't punish the people um, that have have the, the, the greatest awareness about these problems. This is a problem that needs to be solved collectively and not individually. And this is what the DSA is starting to do. The DSA is not an absolute fix, but it starts to, to limit the power of the big platforms to say, okay, there are rules you need to respect and we want to look into what you are doing. What kind of data do you actually collect? How do you direct content to people? How come that disinformation gets shared a hundred, a thousand, a million times more than factual information? Um, we want to know. And once we know, I think we can, we can further regulate and improve the internet to make it a freer place. But it's very difficult for single people to do that. I think what people can do is to speak about this, to be aware there is a huge profile with hundreds of thousands, millions of pieces of data. You know, these platforms know where where your your gynecologist is, who your psychiatrist is. Uh, If your your kids have special needs, um, this is scary. And I think what we need to do is to be aware of this, but also to be aware that this is not connected to the technology. I mean, the technology of the Internet is fantastic, and it was public technology in the first place. the fact that we are able to speak here from different places, um, to have all this knowledge globally, to, to connect, this is a great achievement And this is possible without the kind of business model of privatized business model, surveillance business model that is existing now. There is a good, a good alternative and it's it's easy to establish. We just need the political will to do that.
1: Amazing. So. One of the arguments as well that we hear a lot, you know, it's about the, um, the freedom of speech and how, you know, some of the regulations are really tricky because it means that not everybody will be able to freely express themselves on the Internet. And I'd love to have your perspective on that.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a good question that people always ask. I think what the DSA uh, really achieved, and I'm really proud that we did this in Europe, is that it doesn't hold a- platforms accountable or liable for- for what their users think, so limiting, potentially, freedom of speech. But the DSA holds platforms accountable for what the platforms do. So we look into the algorithms, we look into the business model, um, we look into how they moderate content and how they hold them accountable. Speech is still free as long as it is legal. Um, this is very clear. Then there's a second point that I think is interesting to make and is important to make that the times where everybody could speak freely in the internet are long over because today the freedom of expression in the internet is basically is the freedom of white men who don't work with migrants, who don't defend feminists and so on. Um, because a lot of women are pushed out of the public debate in the internet because of the enormous amounts of hate they receive. People who work with migrants, people uh, people of color, people who go against um, extremist right-wing parties. There's an Maybe for the German speakers among us, many of you might know Austrian um, politologist Natasha Strobel, who is quite known on Twitter for excellent analysis of right wing movements, and she is regularly offline because she says, "Well, I-, I can take the heat up to a certain point, but then at a certain point, I have to protect myself and my children." And this happens to so, so, so many people. Um, so already there is no freedom of speech because. Hate is disseminated so strongly by the platforms that it's very easy to, um, for right-wing movement, organized movements, to use this mechanism and to specifically attack people like women, um, like migrants, and so on, and they have really, really a smaller voice. And that means that the power mechanisms on private digital platforms are exactly the same, like in larger society, where we know that the same people have, have a smaller voice, have less power, less income, and less possibilities to make their voice heard. And in the internet, this is even amplified. So almost all women politicians I know think very carefully about what they say and what they post in the internet, especially if it's about feminism, is if it's about migration-sensitive topics. And therefore, we already don't have freedom of expression in the internet. And I think we have to think very carefully about what freedom of expression means. Does it mean that everybody can say anything insulting and threatening other people? or? Does it mean that we try to create a very inclusive society and an inclusive digital environment, where everybody can make their voice heard, independent of their gender or their their, their
1: um, the color of their skin? It's very key to mention that because you know the internet has really, truly, never really been a safe space for minorities and for so many people. Uh, so we slowly arriving to the end of the episode, and before we close, I just want to ask you: Where can people follow you? If there's anything you want to mention to finish off for our listeners to know about, uh, the time is now. Well, you
0: can follow me on on Twitter if you're interested in in digital details. Those are mostly on Twitter, very political stuff, and then. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, (laughs) unfortunately. I wish there were alternatives, but still, if I want to reach people and communicate my message and get my message through, um, that's where I am. And I have a website as well uh, where you find some news and some information about me. I will be working further on this topic, on digital technology, the next uh, legislative dossier coming up in the European Union will be on political advertising, where exactly the same issues will be extremely, extremely important, and maybe even easier to understand, because there it comes down really to the political messaging, who can say what to whom, who can be targeted,
1: and how can we defend ourselves against political disinformation. Great. Thank you so much, Alexandra. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Green Talking Heads on the Digital Services Act. Alexandra is highly passionate about these issues and you can really tell by the depth of her expertise and the way she advocates for these. I really appreciated that she mentioned that, you know, while EU citizens can implement a few practices to make their online behavior more conscious and a bit more safe, the DSA and digital rights at large represent a much bigger scale of global power dynamics and it's not an individual matter. So make sure you check out the article, How Will the DSA Change the Word? available on Alexandra's website, for which we will put a link in the description of the episode. We'll also indicate Alexandra's Twitter handle so that you can stay close to all of our news and activities. And in part two of the episode, we'll be in conversation with Jan Penfrat from EDRI, the European Digital Rights. And that's an episode you don't want to miss. So definitely stay tuned for that. And as always, if you are not already, please follow the European Greens on all social media and do subscribe to the podcast on all of your podcast platforms, all of them. And thanks again for listening. Stay tuned and take care.